0: Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here. What a great, what a great day. Good to see the church filling up. This is very good. So glad you are here. And as Travis said earlier, we're guests. We're always glad to have you in the building or uh, online. Thanks for joining us. And we do have a gift for you afterwards. We'd love to say hi Um Boy, we got a lot of work to do. I'm going to jump into Nehemiah 13. At the close of the sermon, we're going to go, th- we're going to have communion together, uh, remembering the Lord's table. It's something we do here, one of our traditions, and, uh, it fits in with where we're headed in our passage. So, uh, you picked up this as you came in, hopefully. If not, I think they'll be available to pass out, um, when we get to that towards the end of the sermon. So, Nehemiah 13, uh, we're finishing up this passage. And I've loved it, man. I just uh, have enjoyed this, this whole book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we have sermon notes available for you online. If you ever miss a message, you can both hear it as well as uh, get some notes if that's helpful for you. Uh, as we get to this last chapter, uh, kind of the question I want to put in front of you is, um, what do you want to re- be remembered for? I know it's weird to think like, am I going to die or what are you, why are you saying that? No. Well, yeah, you are absolutely everybody someday, but what do you want to be, what do you want to be remembered for? Or maybe better, more contemporary, but what do you want to be known for today? Like your friends, your peers, people that you hang out with or work or what do you want to be known for? Your reputation, those values that you would say, man, this is, this is it. Um, Nehemiah, uh, I think most of you are probably up to speed with, with our story. Nehemiah is a, as a leader, uh, sent. It's a great story that, that Caitlin referred to in the book of Esther. Uh, this last week I sent out a note. Uh, there's the, the celebration, the one day celebration of Purim, which is the story of Esther. Uh, and believe it or not, Esther, this is cool. Esther probably had an impact on our story in Nehemiah. The events of Esther, when she went before her husband, the king, and if you don't know the story, she literally risked her life just to go before him in an official manner. Uh, when she did that, and God ended up saving the nation of Israel, the people of Israel that were in exile. Remember, they were in Persia. They've now come back, and when the king sends, the king of Persia sends Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, that's the king. When the king sends Nehemiah uh, uh, back home to help rebuild the wall, that king might have been the son of the king who Esther went before. Isn't that cool? So the story all ties together. So the Feast of Purim that was just celebrated uh, in the Jewish calendar this last week, the story of Esther, greatly had impact on where we find Nehemiah. This man was sent... Uh, back to Jerusalem to help build the wall. As you know, he accomplished that mission. But when he accomplished the mission of building the wall, the book doesn't end. There's always more to the story. And that's really what we're talking about today. What do you want to be remembered for? So he got the wall built. The work was done. Um, but there was some work that still had to be done. Sometimes leaders are real clear on what the objective is. Maybe you might feel as a dad in your home, the objective of my leadership is very clear, I'm supposed to do this, or your place at work. Uh, You have a role and you feel confident with that. Oftentimes, God is calling us to something beyond what we imagine. We think, well, I just need to do this thing. I'm going to go get the team together. We're going to build a wall and it's going to be a good day. And God had more in store for Nehemiah. Because the people. The people needed leadership. They needed shepherding. They needed someone that cared about them to say, hey gang, we're going the wrong direction here and we need to stop that train right now. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. I'm going to outline this passage in Nehemiah chapter 13. There's four references to the word remember. Remember. Uh, verse fourteen this isn 't on the screen yet we 'll get there in just a second, but in verse fourteen he says, Remember me, oh my god uh, we 're going to talk about the importance of worship and ministry verse twenty two he says, Remember this also in my favor, oh my god we 're going to talk about uh, focus and trust and soul care and and the reason that we need to uh, trust God for how he 's designed us. Uh, the third will be in verse twenty nine he says Remember them, oh my God' Uh, we're going to talk about trusting for God's plans in healthy relationships. Trusting that God has order, God has design. And then he'll finish up just a couple of verses later in verse 31. Remember me, oh my God, for good. We're going to talk about purposeful living. And those four things will lead us into uh, when Paul leads the church in Corinth to stop and remember. Uh, and honestly, gang, that's what we do every Sunday when we gather. The songs that we sing. Uh, the worship time, the opening God's word, we're remembering the faithfulness of God. We're remembering that God has been good and God has blessed us and we, that that fuels us for looking ahead. And so there's a time to re, to remember and there's also a value in choosing what you want to be remembered for. So, so Nehemiah realizes there's work to do. In verse number uh, one, he says, uh, reading, we're going to talk about reading God's word, the importance of this. Uh, they, they read God's word and it says in verse number one, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Remembering, When we read God's Word, we're caused to remember. That's the work. Of the Bible, that's the work of God's Word. When we talk here about hey yada, you gotta have some time in your day when you open the Bible, uh, when you when you scroll a passage, when you hear it as you're driving, you need to allow God's Word in your life to help you remember Him, remember His faithfulness, and we saw this earlier with Ezra. Remember when Ezra stood and, they, and, and, the, and the congregation stood for hours, and he read the Word. Many of them, that's the first time they would have heard the word of God read to them. And for others, that might have been the first time in a long time that they heard God's word. But what you'll remember is when they heard it, they did something. It caused a reaction. We've heard about God's faithfulness. We've heard the stories and now we're remembering. Remember a few chapters ago, there was a time of celebration that came because they remembered, oh yeah, God did that thing for our people and we're every year to remember that. So they did it. We see the same thing here. Uh, We have this passage that may sound kind of random to you and I'm going to try not to belabor this point. I want to, but we're going to try to keep moving. These first couple of verses, he references a story uh, in the Old Testament given to us, uh, both in Deuteronomy 13 it's referenced, but also in Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24. You have the story of Balaam. Anybody remember the story of Balaam? There's one really cool part about the story of Balaam that should stick out to everybody. The talking... The talking, one more time, the talking, yeah, more confidence. So it's like, is this the right story? Because that sounds really bizarre to me. It's the right story, and it is very bizarre. Uh, it's the story when, when God allowed an animal, a donkey, to speak to his servant. Did you guys know that? Did you know that's a story of the Bible where the donkey talks? The weird part about that story is, just to be honest with you, as you read it, is he talked back to the donkey. Like, that had to feel weird. Like, I think he just said something, and so now I'm going to engage in this conversation with this four-footed beast. Well, the point that he brings up in, in these first couple of verses, the people are reading. They've come together. They're reading the Bible. They get to Numbers. And in that story, it was, it was past the story of the talking donkey. This is the story where uh, Balak... Make sure I get my facts in the story. Uh, Balak, he's the king of Moab, which was to the south. This, these are not God's people. They were not good people. They were enemies of the Lord's people as a nation. Um, and so Balak, the king, sees the nation of Israel coming back. This is back in Numbers. And there's fear. There's fear of the power of the people of God. And so what he did is he went to a what we call a sorcerer or a prophet. This is kind of like beyond my pay scale to totally understand how this works. But you have this kind of this the sorcerer person who would like talk to the spirits. Uh, we would see him as a prophet, but not always on the good team. Let's just say it that way, right? Wouldn't be on the good. Team, And so they hired this prophet, Balaam, to go and prophesy against the nation of Israel to cause them to be fearful. So in other words, Balak the king says, here comes the nation of Israel. Hey, let's go pay this guy. I think he can be bought. And we'll have him give a prophecy against them. So they're all like nervous and shaking in their boots and they don't want to proceed with war. That's what we'll do, right? And so they do that. And Balaam says, yeah, I don't think I should do that. And a couple times the kings keep saying, yeah, you should do this. And finally he consents under one condition. I'll step up and do that as long as you allow me to honestly say what God tells me to say. Right? Fair enough? So Balaam's not a good guy. Uh, He's kind of being used for good. And there's a confidence that he has in God. But we wouldn't see him as like one of the family necessarily. So he does that. And so when it comes time to give the prophecy, guess what he does? He blessed them. Like the nation of Israel. He gets up and, and Balak's over here says, Okay, say the word. Remember, he's got the little microphone or the thing in his ear. Say these words, they're toast. And he gets up and says, Man, God bless you guys. You're going to win this war or something like that. And so now Balak is like, whoa, 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 wait, what are you doing? And he's all uptight. He's angry. He's upset. And so we have this thing of of what was meant for evil. God did something really good. He blessed his people. And sometimes we might feel this sense of all is against me. There's a big enemy out there, and I don't like it, and I feel insecure, I feel weak, and here we have one of many stories in the Bible that's built on the biblical principle where it says, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing, If we had time for discussion, maybe you can do this later, uh, share stories. What are some other times in the Bible when God did something good out of what was meant for evil? The first thing that comes to everyone's mind, I'm assuming, is Joseph, because they use that exact phrase. You know, Joseph, what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good in a phenomenal way. You see that principle repeated throughout Scripture. Uh, that doesn't mean everywhere you turn, uh, you know, bad things are turning to good. It means God can and often does use the hard things, the things that may be intended for evil against us. He'll turn it and use it for good. So that's what you see in these first couple of verses. That's what's referenced. And so that's the principle or the statement I start with. We read so we can remember. This is the work of God's word. And I'm reminded, so no matter what I'm going through today, this week, the pressure, the things that don't make sense, I know God's up to something. We say that all the time here. God is always working. He's never stopped. He doesn't take a day off. He's not pulling away, saying, you know what, you're a mess. He's always working. Um, and he asks for us to submit and to trust him in that work. So it causes us to say, what is God doing in my life? What are those things that may seem not great, But God might be doing something good. And so we see this in those first couple verses, just right out of the gate. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Which simply means we're hearing that there was some evil intent. God's doing good. Nehemiah's about to set them up for, there's some things among you that aren't good. Like, what if you guys came to Grace on a Sunday and I stood here in my, my prophetic voice and said, you know, I can see in this room there's a lot of messes going on. And all of a sudden I started looking into your eyes and I was like speaking something that really was really hard for you. And I'm saying, this is a train wreck, you're going the wrong direction. And all of a sudden you're feeling this pressure, what's going on? That's about what's going to happen. As Nehemiah leads his people through what we call a reform to correct some horrible things that had slipped in. Let me remind you, because we didn't deal with it last week, Nehemiah takes, there's about a 10-year break when Nehemiah uh, went back to Persia, probably business called. The king of Persia says, Man, the wall's built, that's awesome, come back, i got some things for you to clean up here. He did, now he's come and returned uh, back to Judah, verse Uh, number four, let me get my place here. Uh, so the, the, the remembrances, the, the next one we see in verse, we're going to see down in verses four to 14, remember the house of God. So he's going to address the actual house of God. It was misused and abused. He's going to say, because again, there's been 10 years since the wall was finished. We're at 100 years since the people first started coming back. So a lot of time, people have gotten comfortable. People have fallen into some of their old habits, their old, their old ways. And so now, uh, we he's going to talk about the house of God. Look at verse number. Before I get to there, I'll skip up to verse uh, 47 in the chapter before, uh, chapter 12. And all Israel... In the days of Zerubbabel, that was the first group that came back, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So if you remember, this was all God's plan and how the house of God was being uh was being cared for. The people brought their offerings, and the the Levites, the priests, the singers were all they all uh uh were, were blessed from that. That was how they made their living. So they were things were in motion. This is the way Moses set it up back in the law. And they got it going um, in that summary statement at the end of chapter 12. Now look at verse number four of chapter 3, uh 13. Uh, Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, Tobiah wasn't for the wall building, he wasn't a good guy, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests, While this was taking place, he says, I was not in Jerusalem, and he talks about how we went back to Persia for 10 years. So, here's the focus. The temple's rebuilt. The wall's rebuilt. Things are in motion. Um... Does this priest in verse number four, Eliashib, the priest, he had given a room inside the temple for Tobiah to come and dwell? So Tobiah is not one of the good guys. He opened up this room, this chamber for him to dwell. In doing so, they cleaned out what was the storage of the grain offerings, all these things that were brought for the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers. So we have a holy room. Being misused, and you're like right now saying, "So why do I care about this?" Well, because it's in the Bible. A, um, what he's going to tell us is everything matters. God has order. God has design. And when people drift away from the things that are important, pretty soon you find yourself giving room to this, and it's like unholy. And the Bible warns us against uh, calling something holy unholy. And so we saw. This room being misused. Skip down to verse eight. This is, so, so Nehemiah says, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Did you guys catch that? You guys with me on this? He got angry and what did he do? Yeah, he threw his stuff out. Now this isn't like over drama. This is like a man who's like, what are we doing here, people? And so he like, picked up this chair and threw it. I'm not going to do that now. I probably should have thought that through. But that would have been a good idea just to give you guys, oh, wow, this is really happening. So he was angry. Why was he so angry? Does he have an anger problem? Um, does he like go off the handle? Um, he, he was angry because he understood the weight of what was happening here. And he says in verse 9, Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So don't miss this. Nehemiah was not Mr. Nice Guy. Sometimes in Christianity, we're way too nice. Please don't take that as permission to go throw furniture today. But the point is, when we confront sin, we confront something that's wrong, we're like, man, I need to be really super careful and sensitive about this. Well, maybe on some days, but sometimes you just need to call it what it is. We're going to see this throughout this chapter. So Nehemiah's not messing around. He's like, man, we put a lot of work into building this wall. God has done an amazing thing bringing his people back. And you got a couple clowns that are misusing the entire thing, and now we've made something that was holy unholy. We're not going to do that. Cleans out, throws the furniture. So have fun with that as you read your devotions. Just tossing the furniture out onto the street. Get out of here, you vile person. Um, by the way, does that sound familiar? Remember Jesus, the Son of God? On his way up to the temple, he sees the misuse of the space. A place that's sacred, a place that's open and inviting for people to come and know God, and then you have people selling things for people that were coming into the temple to pay their their offerings. Uh, Hey, I'll sell you a dove to to sacrifice. It's five million dollars today, though. And so Jesus comes and says, "Nonsense." And what does Jesus do? Like he throws furniture. He turns over the table, and it wasn't like you know that. I'm sure it was like, "What are you doing to my house?" And you know, throws the table awesome stuff here, guys. This isn't anger management or crisis. This is like someone who's passionate because they understand the wealth and the depth and the conviction of that which is holy. That's the point. What gets me riled up? What stirs you? What gets you uptight? The misuse of that which is set apart to be holy. Nehemiah wasn't Mr. Nice Guy. I like one quote I read, both Jesus and Nehemiah had the wisdom to not confuse love with being nice and the wisdom to know when to take bold action. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So back from verse, you know, the chapter before, we're supposed to do this stuff, they weren't doing it anymore. Uh, so God's holy servants were being abused. The room was being misused, and the servants are being abused. And so now the priests, the gatekeepers, the singers, they were no longer in the temple doing their thing because they, weren't being, they couldn't live off of nothing. And so they ended up going back home, working at the family farm so that they could pay their bills and have a life. And, and Nehemiah catches that in verses 10 and 11. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, "'Why is the house of God forsaken?' And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So Nehemiah's taking care of business. The leader's not done until God says he's done. And so the wall's built, but we got some mess going on here. They remember God's word. They remember the story of, of, uh, of the impurities of generations before. And now as he begins to deal with things, he starts with the house of the Lord. Why is God's house being forsaken? Well, it was just a simple idea to let someone stay in the room. No, it wasn't that simple. And so they took care of business. He set things in place. In verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil storehouse. So now it returned. They started bringing the things back. The gatekeepers, singers, Levites, priests came back to work. Second one, remember when the Sabbath was ignored. So the first one we talk about, we remember uh, that the house of God had been misused and abused. And now he's going to talk about the Sabbath, how the Sabbath has been ignored and why that's a problem. So the house of God is in order. The Levites and the priests and the singers are back on 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 cue. But it's the keeping of Sabbath that needed to be addressed. In verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine press on the Sabbath. No, 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 no. You don't do that. Uh, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on their donkeys. Uh, and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So, you see this in the New Testament as well. The, you remember the, the the fishermen, the people that were working on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, no, you don't do that. Uh, they were holding to the law, and specifically here in Nehemiah, he confronts this in verse number 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? They were totally ignoring it. They were They were pretending, well, it's just another day of the week. Really, what's the point? we got to make a living. There's still a market for people to buy our goods. I don't know what the big deal is. they they'd gotten away from that which God called as holy. Verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? So again, Nehemiah does the work. He confronts the issues. Look at verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, so we would see that as Friday night, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So just like we saw that the room was cleared out by the throwing of furniture, uh, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't trying to protect his image of a nice guy. Hey, we ought to negotiate with these guys and try to figure out how they can take care of their business while not messing up the Sabbath. He didn't do that. He said, lock the gates. Like, shut down the entrance to the entire city right now. All those gates that we just built and, and hinged, uh, shut them down. Don't let people in. So he's taking dramatic, strong action because he's making a point. Um, he wasn't afraid of this. He meant business. Verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, like this, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Someone help me out. What does he mean? I'm going to lay hands on you. Is that Acts chapter two? Lay hands on you? No, I'm going to, I'm going to punch you in the throat if you get near this wall again. You guys are trying to make money on a day that God called was holy. The people inside the wall are, are doing their part to keep it holy, and you're coming in and selling your stuff. And they don't have any option but to take take advantage. Will you be back the next day? They don't know. I'm going to pop you. And they didn't come back. They did, they, they, they said, "Okay, we, we got it. Point taken." You see, see, I love this guy, this leader who did the right thing, but wasn't wasn't afraid of his image was willing to take a, take a stand and take a hit. Um, I think it's important we understand uh, a couple things about the Sabbath. Um, he, he had asked earlier, the house of God needs to be taken care of. And then he ended that section by saying, God, remember me for the things that we've done. And now as he talks about the Sabbath, he says again in verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So the Levites have been purified. The things are in place. We've now honored the Sabbath as we should. I think this speaks to our worship. I think this speaks to my, my heart of trusting God for his design. Why don't we keep the Sabbath today? It's a, different, it's a different topic, a different picture. But please understand, the Sabbath is the idea that God set aside time for rest. And in setting aside time for rest, he commanded his people to be known as people that took that specific twenty-four hour period and rest, and trust him for his provisions. Trust him for the things that otherwise would keep us busy. Uh, so we're wise to remember that, whether it's a Saturday or the uh, the seventh uh, on the seventh day, or or perhaps your day off or a period of time that you designate, we are wise as his people to give it a rest, to just stop. I guarantee if I sat down with each one of you, there's always something demanded of your schedule. I know you. I live a life like yours. There's always something to do. There's always things that, there's always more. Benefits of taking a Sabbath rest We're not under the law as they were there. The Sabbath is for the follower of Christ. They had that day of rest, and now today Christians celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ in our day of worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day that Christ rose, so he redeemed it. That doesn't mean you ignore Sabbath. Some people transfer that to Sunday and say Sunday should be a Sabbath rest completely where we don't do many of the activities. That's fine. That's awesome. Um I think the key here is that we understand what Sabbath means and that we lean into resting, stopping, trusting God, being marked as different, not feeling like we have to compact everything in. Benefits of Sabbath demonstrates your dependency on God. Much like fasting, Fasting demonstrates that God will sustain me. I don't have to have three huge meals every day. I could actually take a break from some food for a little bit, trust God that I'll be sustained, but also have some time to focus on him. So it demonstrates dependency on God. I know I'm not working. I know I'm not being paid. I'm not accomplishing that long task list. I'm stopping. Secondly, I think it's because God rested on the seventh day, and we're made in his image. I love that line, by the way. I pull that card all the time. Mago Day. Everybody we know is made in the image of God, whether they know him or not. We are designed to stop. We're designed to rest. We're designed to say no to some things. Some of you all would, your head would explode if you said no to some something. You're always being asked. You got to keep everybody busy. There's a huge calendar. There's lots going on. Pastor Mark, you have no idea. You don't understand this stuff. I don't need to. It's not my thing. It's your thing. You got to stop. You got to rest. Yes, we're going to say no to some things. God rests on the seventh. I think us being made in His image, we know that physically, emotionally, and even spiritually, we need to stop. Give it, give it, give it a rest. I think thirdly, it honors God when we when we give Him when we give Him our time. When we just set aside time. And so, guys, we don't live under the Old Testament law where, you know, starting Friday night at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown, there's this clock ticking. It's not that for us, um, much like the many of the Old Testament commands that set aside the people of God. But the principle, I think, should be somewhere reflected in your life. You guys good with that? Don't leave the church mad. Don't say, I don't have a clue. Just trust God that he's probably maybe speaking to you if that kind of bothers you right now. Just give it a rest. Take some time. Maybe it's not once, maybe seven days. I think it should be. I think we should work hard. It's probably not going to be a 24-hour block. It may be four hours here and four hours over here. However it works, just give yourself some rest. Have permission to live out what we believe God has designed us to be. So he said, remember me and spare me according to your great steadfast love. He corrected now the Sabbath teaching for their environment, much like I'm addressing us. So listen, there's, there's seasons of intense labor. There's seasons where, man, it's just go, go, go. We've all had that. We, you might be in the middle of that where, man, I wish I could have a rest. Hang on and trust God for the rest that might be coming for you. Um, we want to be remembered as one who trusts God enough to rest and honor his ways. Be remembered as one who trusted God enough to say, I'm going to say some no and things. I'm going to give myself permission to pull out of something. All right, the next one. Remember the priests. And here we have a, a tough story. The priests who sinned. Uh, verses, verse, look at verse number uh, 23. Uh, verse 23, he says... Um, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Amnon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. So now we have people who have gone outside God's instruction as a people to, to remain a people. Over time, this gradually happened. It happened back in the first five books of the, of the law. It's happening again. Nehemiah sees it, and specifically with the priests. So it wasn't just the priests. I think it was the people. They had intermarried once again. Perhaps this was happening more as Nehemiah was back in Persia for a bit. I don't know. Verse 25, and I confronted them. What do you see here? Nehemiah is always in their business. Guys, we got to take care of the house of God. We need to pay attention to Sabbath. And by the way, why are half of you married to people you shouldn't be married to? What a bold statement, right? So he says, and I confronted them and cursed them. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That's in the Bible. That's not my, like, comic relief commentary. This guy, you feel like, has he gone mad? Has he, like, what's he doing? He's, people married the wrong person, and so I pulled out their hair, and I made them take good parents, have a good time with your kids explaining this at lunch, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He reminded them of the mess that Solomon had made when he intermarried. By the way, more than a few times. Let's not look to Solomon for much of that counsel. Um, Verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priest and the Levites. We need to be remembered as people who know God's design and are willing to be different because he's made us different. God has made us unique. He's made us his, his people. We're not the Jews. The church does not replace Israel. That's, that's not the teaching. But we today are God's people, along with all that know Jesus Christ and trust him as Savior. We're marked as his people. We're to live differently. We're called to a set of standards, rules, this, this calling of, God, I, I, I want to be all yours. And so it's going to look different than perhaps those that don't have that. Why would he get so angry at that? I mean, why this vivid picture? Throwing furniture and, and punching people in the throat. And, and now he's like you know, going mad and you know, doing this and pulling hair out. Why? Why that kind of conviction? Because it was just that. It was a conviction of that which is holy before the Lord. He was, he was physically uh, passionate about this. He wasn't just an angry person that later we're going to have to apologize for. Here is a man who understood the, the holiness of God's people, the place of worship, the, the, the teaching of rest, the, the sacredness of marriage. So that's not to say if you've married someone, you weren't sure it was a great idea that I or anybody else is going to pull your hair out or, or, or punch you. Uh, it just simply means, God, I want to be yours. I want to trust you. I want to follow your design, even the relationships that are around me, God, that I would do that. I want to be remembered as one who knows God's design, trusts the patterns that he's given me. And then he finishes, and in the last little bit, he, to remember for your glory and for your good. I, I love this; real simple. Verse thirty-one: I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. And then he says, "Remember me, O my God, for good." So things are back in order. He's addressed these things that were, that were, that were error, that were sin, that had been perhaps started slow and just kind of built up momentum. And now all of a sudden things are out of control. No one's paying attention to the Lord's house. No one's paying attention to Sabbath. Doesn't matter who you marry. Doesn't matter what you do. God's people are, that's old news. He's corrected that. He's brought strong teaching and even some demonstrable responses to that. But then he gets to the end and says, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priest, the Levites, his work. And I, and I provided for the wood offering in appointed times. And then he simply says this fourth time, remember me, God. Re- remember me for your good. Remember me for your glory. You've heard us use that statement. What we do, we do for his glory and our good. We're better off when we do it his way. Things tend to be good when we honor him. Doesn't mean it's always perfect. Doesn't mean there's not some struggles. 1 Corinthians 10, you know, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Everything that drives your life ought to somewhere be said, I do this for God's glory. As I do with my kids, take care of the financial stress deal with this thing at work, talk through hard conversations, the entertainment values, all these things, somewhere it ought to be said, man, I, I live for God's glory. That doesn't mean it's a—I put on an angel costume with a halo and I just hum all the time. And no, it means I'm living life and I'm engaged in life, but I, I live for his glory. And, and Nehemiah says, Lord, I, just remember, remember me for your good. God, I, I love you and I, I want all that you've taught me uh, to, be, to be lived out. I think these four remembrances also are statements that say, God, hold on to it. God, keep it going. Keep it going. God, God, keep the house of, house of the Lord active and moving. Keep the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers fed. God, keep the Sabbath. Let those people honor you. Just Lord, remember that. Just keep it going, God. Thank you for letting me be a voice. And God, when these people are, are leaning into relationships and they're, they're looking for their, their partner, God, help them to honor you and the choices they make. God, remember. Remember me for your good. Uh, That's ultimately what this is all about, remembering. Today, we still remember. As I said, we come to church. We sing songs. We we open a sacred book. A lot of people you know aren't in a room like this right now saying, this matters to me. We remember. We look back and see God's faithfulness from from day one of creation and before and, and, and the story and the life he's given us. And today, as we take communion in just a few moments and remember, take these elements, we remember Jesus. We remember that Jesus, who paid it all so that we could live for him today and we can live with him soon. See, God wants us to remember. Jesus wants us to stay focused. Jesus wants us to, as we take elements and we take juice and bread, he wants us to remember there was a cross. And what he did there, he did so that we could live live for him today, like today, right now, 2000, what is this, 22. Our life could have purpose and meaning because we're remembering the things that matter. He wants us to do that because we're living for him. And soon, and I think pretty soon, we're going to be living with him for all of eternity. And I don't want to show up on the doorway of eternity and look back and say, yeah, God, I kind of forgot all that. I forgot to do that because, yeah, I remember that time that I thought was important, but I kind of forgot. I want to say, God, I remember. I, you, 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 you sent people like Nehemiah to say, what are you doing? And they even threw furniture and pulled hair, but they got my, they got my attention. Today as a church, we need to remember. The church in Corinth was called to remember in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read a few verses that lead us into the communion, um, practice that we're going to take in just a second. Verse 18 of 1st Corinthians 11, Paul says, for in the first place, and this is, this is important. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear, I understand. It's words gotten to me that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together. It's not for the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead and has with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And Paul says, "He sounds like Nehemiah. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in?" Or do you not despise, or do you despise, the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's got a little Nehemiah thing going here. You remember, I'll be brief with this, but the church, the early church, but often when they came together to remember the Lord's Supper like we're going to do, they didn't pass out this, this thing that's made who knows where. Uh, what they did was they had a meal. Uh, they didn't call it a potluck, they called it an agape meal, love feast, right? And so the church came together and they all brought their food and they had a great meal. And at that meal, they said, hey, let's remember why we're around this table. Let's remember what brings us here. So they had just eaten. And Paul's addressing that meal, some of you fat cats, you showed up with your big old feast and you plopped it on the table, and then you were first in line to load up your plate. And meanwhile, that poor widow over here who who hardly could bring anything, you've left her at the back of the line. He he he's doing Nehemiah. What what are you doing? You've missed the whole point here. And you you get this sense of of, of him saying, "There's divisions among you, and you're basing it off of food and financial resource." And if Paul was in the room, what do you think he would do? You think maybe? (laughs) You think maybe he'd toss some tables or or pull some hair? I don't know. But he's like, what do I do with you guys? This This isn't God's idea. The church is not about separating over your abilities. The church isn't about looking separately at people. And honestly, gang, in this world, it's not much different. We look at Nehemiah. And he goes back to numbers. Man, they, they screwed up there, didn't they? What a mess. And Nehemiah says, man, you guys are messing up now, aren't you? Paul says, church boy, you guys are messing it up. Here I am with you, 2022. 20, are we divisive? Are we cliquish? Do we have attitudes and we say things that aren't helpful? Do we look at a place like this? People maybe sitting not even close to you, and we tend to do this? Do we tend to bring biases and prejudices when we walk into a place of worship? When we sit with Jesus, have we already decided how this is going to play out? Or do we say, God, I cannot believe what you did on a cross for me. And because of that, God, I want my life to be an open book I want my life to be be your hands and your feet, to, to, to do your work, to love your people. Guys, we're not talking about perfection and being angelic. We're talking about being true and honest and going through the hard times. But no and I've got some people around me. i got some people sitting in this room with me. I don't even know who they are. But yet we're called to do this together. And I think there's the unifying factor of remembering the table of our Savior, whether it's a potluck, A church service with some awesome music, but we come together and say, "God, what is it you did for me again?" So, if you have your elements, take hold on, get those ready. If you didn't get one and you'd like one, just raise your hand. Our guys are ready to come down and offer that to you if you'd like. Things right here. Um, Yeah, we got a few guys that need it. So, yeah, just keep your hand up there for a second. They'll get right to you. This is, uh, you know, it's a little bit of juice, and on the top part is a little. Wafer that's uh, the best they can come up with, and there'll be a day we can improve on this. But this, it's not about the quality of the, this, it's about what this represents. The church comes together unified to say, God, what is it you did for me again? Communion's all about remembering, about remembering over here, all about remembering, all about saying, God, you did this thing for me. You guys need up here? Over here? 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul just kind of got in their business. Paul went Nehemiah on them and said, I can't believe you guys are being divisive. You, you come to this meal and you're, you're more concerned about how much food you can get as opposed to saying, you know what? I've got more food at home. Step out of the way. And let someone else come by and, and get a big old nice sandwich in front of you. But then after that, he goes right away in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and the cup. If you've been elbowing people to get your place in line, pause. Just stop. Just say, God, it's been a mess the last few days. God, the last few weeks... Whatever you want to say, might be the last two years. I don't think it's been awesome. I just want to pause, God, examine myself. I know Christ is in me. I know Christ loves me unconditionally. And as a father disciplines his child, the father comes to you and says, hey, why don't you just examine for just a second here, just pause. How are we doing, me and you? Just sit there for a second. We call it communion. The better picture is the Lord's Supper because it takes us back to the night. The night. You know what night I'm talking about. We're going to celebrate that night on Good Friday service here in just a few weeks. But they're having their meal uh, Seder, Passover, Haggadah. They're having their meal. And Jesus takes a piece of bread. And uh, he broke it. And he began to pass around. But this time he said something that he hadn't said a couple years prior. Paul tells us in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Well, eat it take it, partake of it, enjoy it. What I'm going to do for you in just a few hours, they had no idea. They did not know what this would look like, but we do. Because I want you to remember when you hold this piece of bread, what I'm going to do for you. I want you to partake of it. And I want you to remember, remember the cross. Remember all that Jesus went through. Not because I'm all that, but because he is. And he sees in you. He saw something in you. He loved you. He loves you right now. And he says, I did this for you. Maybe the person near you, the people in your life are saying you're not worth much and you don't matter and your life is too messy and you don't deserve this. But Jesus says, I did this for you. So remember this. He needs us to remember it. Father, I thank you for this, this bread, this 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 little representation of bread that really is a picture of your body that God you gave your son Jesus and he physically died on a cross because he loved me and he loves these dear people I'm speaking with right now. God, we thank you for that. And today we just we're just being thankful. We're just saying thank you. We're remembering what you did for us. Let's take up the bread together. And then, and then that same night, he, he grabbed one of the cups, one of probably three or four throughout the evening. He took the cup and he said, he, he, I, I, I've always envisioned he kind of held it up and looked at it as he talked. I, I don't know that it was that, but he took that cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Like there's something about this that you guys will never forget. Do this. Do what? Take it. Drink it. He said, do this as often as you drink it. How? Why? To remember. To remember me. Not just to remember the the scene of the cross. That there was a body. And that that body shed blood. And that body was painful. And that body was bruised. and, And it was hard. Yes. But today, remember me. Jesus, today, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven at this very moment. The best we understand time and eternity, Jesus is with the Father right now. And in this room, he's, re- he's saying, remember, I'm right here. I did what I did for you. Some of you experienced that and you lived that a long time ago, but yet life has gotten busy and complicated, a few a few wrong turns, a few bumps, and, and you find yourself saying, does God even know me anymore? Jesus is saying, man, remember me right now. I'm sitting by the Father. And I think Jesus also wants you to know, by the way, I'm just waiting for the Father to give me the nudge to say, go get him. Whatever the mess is, remember, Jesus loves you, has made you complete, has made you whole because of his mercy. So let's take up this cup in remembering Christ's blood, the sacrifice for our sins. Father, you tell us, for as often as we eat this bread and drink that cup, that we're proclaiming your death. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're telling the story of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And you're causing us to remember who you are and what you've done for us. So, God, we receive that with great joy and great uh, declaration of thankfulness to you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.